And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Welcome everyone to Podcast 59 and to the month of November, a month chock full of festivals and special days. And even though November is more than half over, we begin tonight by relating to you some of our favorites. Uncle Frank, begin. Well, there's Pushkar Camel Fair in India, and then Kenu Kundu Musical Festival in New Guinea. And coming up, there's Lumburi Monkey Banquet in Lumburi, Thailand. The monkeys eat the banquet, not the other way around. Two tons of it. Don't forget the Manchester Reggae Festival on the 30th, and the Guy Fox Carnival throughout November in England. Pennsylvania had Bacon Fest this month, and from now until December 4th, there's the Montreal Bach Festival in Canada. Fascinating. As for special days, November 1st was World Vegan Day, and the 2nd was Plan Your Epitaph Day. And don't forget National Taiwanon Day, the day before Thanksgiving, and False Confession Day on the 21st. All very nice, but what's on the show tonight, Frank? Well, we have the strange and unusual Korla Pandant, the man and musician of mystery and intrigue, and some of his music. We also have our list and discussion on eight of our favorite but oddly forgotten Disney live-action movies. We also have another edition of Encyclopedia Brown on the pretentious readings of scholastic books and a strange and sinister tale from Ronald Dahl. Frank, that's Ronald Dahl. And more stuff, of course. So, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Ed Prentice. You know, even more than your guests, your family deserves real butter. Right now we're having some family fun, butter baking a turkey. Mommy, why do we put butter all over the turkey? To keep them from drying out. Then put butter on the drumstick, too. Mm-hmm. Not the butter makes them golden brown. Gosh, I'll bet he's going to be good. Ah, really, son, dear. Now we dip this cheesecloth in melted butter and wrap him up. To keep him warm? No, so it'll be juicy and tender. Now he's ready to bake ever so slowly. Only 300 to 325 degrees. Will he be ready soon? No, Daddy. Bake him slowly so he'll stay plump, juicy, and tender. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now every half hour we'll take a peek and baste him with butter, of course. He looks so big. And he'll stay big because butter keeps him from drying out and losing juices. That's right. This special American Dairy Association method keeps your turkey from shrinking in the oven. 
A turkey can lose as much as one-third of its weight if it isn't properly roasted. This sure is a big drumstick, Daddy. You know, Mary, this is one of the juiciest turkeys we've ever had. It's terrific. Of course. It's butter-baked. Why don't you get your family together and have fun butter-baking a turkey? Remember, even more than your guests, your family deserves real butter. Corla Pandit presents Adventure in Music. New, exciting sounds to inspire imagination. Absorbing rhythm to cast a spell of unique enchantment. Beginning in February of 1949, this opening was heard from television sets all across Southern California. It was the beginning of a 15-minute all-music program, supposedly the first all-music one in television history. The show aired every afternoon, Monday through Friday, on KTLA Channel 5. The Corla Pandit mentioned would play the magnetic theme on a Hammond organ while he stared mesmerizingly, soulfully, into the camera. He never spoke. An off-camera announcer supplied the spoken introductions to each piece of music. Korla always remained the man of mystery, a savant from India wearing a turban complete with jewel at its center. He became known in later years as the godfather of exotica. After the theme, Korla would fill the rest of his show with mostly exotic music from supposed far-off lands. But he played American standards as well, all in his singular style, he was a great organist and pianist who would sometimes play both at the same time, one hand performing on each instrument. Pandit's style could be flowery and over-the-top at times, but also percussive and interesting. He would create effects by playing many keys at once, sometimes using his whole arm. We'll play a few clips from Mr. Pandit so we can get an idea of his work. Restless as the sea am I since you have gone, tossing dangerously free on an ocean of churning, burning, turbulent emotion. No strength, no faint desire have I to fight against the ebb and flow of love's persistent tide. And so, say I, let the tempest ride, for the storm without may cancel out the fury from within and let the two subside. Mm -hmm. 
Aisha was the favorite wife of Muhammad. And it is said that when she was 16 years of age, she became separated from the main caravan while crossing the desert during a violent sandstorm and was not found for many days. Upon her return, Muhammad's devout followers claimed she was no longer fit to be their leader's wife and under law demanded she be put to death. Whereupon Muhammad retired to his tent to pray and upon conclusion of his prayers stated that Allah had revealed her innocence and thus set her free. Here is Korla Pandit's impression of exultation.
Corlepandit first came to notice when he became the musical director for the revival radio show of Shandu the Magician between June and January of 1948. About this same time, he also began to play around Los Angeles at small-time events. It was at one of these that he was discovered. Klaus Landsberg, the electrical engineer-slash-television pioneer, was at a fashion show being held at radio personality Tom Brenneman's restaurant. Performing there was Corla Pandant. Landsberg was fascinated with Corla. Landsberg also happened to be running local station KTLA for Paramount and needed content. So Landsberg offered Corla a 15-minute daily television show if he would also play music for Bob Clampett's Time for Beanie. Corla accepted. It was Landsberg's idea that Corla would never speak and that he would glance into the camera at the television audience. And it worked. Adventures in Music became a hit, watched by all the Southland. My mother even remembers watching it as a teenager, clear out in Thousand Oaks. Cora put out LPs now, and he even did a few sessions with the Sons of the Pioneers. He was also able to buy a house in the Hollywood Hills, and hobnob with the likes of Bob Hope and Errol Flynn. Corla was a local sensation. He was recognized all over the Southland, and everybody was curious about him, and soon they were sated. They learned he was the son of a New Delhi government worker and a French opera-singing mother, and he was raised in the upper classes and then sent to England and later to the U.S. for schooling. Somewhere along the way, he had also learned music and mastered the organ. In 1951, Corla got an offer for a new television show, one that would be shown all over the nation. So after 900 episodes, Corla left KTLA. His new contract was with a man known as Louis Snader. He was putting together 16-millimeter clips of all sorts of famous musicians, Nat King Cole, for instance, and Peggy Lee, etc. These clips would be sent to be played at stations all over the U.S. Corla was now bigger than ever. The nation was fascinated now. In 1953, he played an organ on a float in the Rose Parade. In 52, he was in a movie, Something to Live For, and appeared on television with Jimmy Durante. He also performed concerts all over the Southland. I mentioned earlier that Corla Pandit had been called by many the godfather of exotica. And for those who might not be familiar with the term, I better define it. Exotica is a type of music that evokes the imagined music from Polynesia, Southeast Asia, sometimes South America and Africa. Think of it as tiki music or 40s movie music of the Orient. Corla popularized this style and introduced it to America. In 1951, Les Baxter released what might be called the first Exotica album, Ritual of the Savage. From there it blossomed and grew and became even more kitschy. To show you the development of Exotica, we're going to play two versions of Quiet Village. Part 1 from The Ritual of the Savage, and then a 1957 version by Morton Denny. <laughs> Thank you. 
back to Corla now. In 1954, Corla had a falling out with Snader, and so left after his minimum shows were finished, and by the way was replaced then by Liberace. In that same year, Corla started his own record label, India Records. In 1955, he began Corla Pandit Adventures in Music for KGO Channel 7 in San Francisco, and he became a hit throughout the Bay Area. And in 1957, he was voted most deserving of national attention. And still, his shorts were being shown all across the country as reruns and would be for years to come. On his later shows, Corla Pandit began to speak. And what he spoke about was the universal language of music. The philosophy was a mixture of genuine and created mysticism, a harmonic blessing of the spirit sources, expressing universal love through tonal vibrations from an ethereal place, Corla would say. And he was sincere and devoted, apparently, about this message. He also became friends with Panamrasa Yoganada, which I probably have butchered. <laughs> and he was the introducer of meditation and Kriya Yoga to the West. The guru wrote an introduction on one of Korla's albums, and Korla performed at his funeral. Nobody's career remains at the top, and neither did Korla's. By 1962, his live performances were off the air, but he still performed and made personal appearances all over California. And in 1967, he was again on the Rose Parade float. That same year, he moved his family to Vancouver, Canada. But he returned often to San Francisco and Los Angeles for work. And eventually, he moved back to the Southland. His wife and grown kids stayed in Canada. He appeared in a Richard Pryor movie in 1972, but that didn't seem to raise his fortunes much. Still, he was always working, but just mostly in smaller venues. From the mid-70s until 1990, he hopped around, living with several friends and finally his sister. In the 1990s, with the Tiki revival, his career got a boost, and he had a whole new cult to following. He could be seen at the Dresden Room or any other lounges in the L.A. area or San Francisco. He drove around in a 1979 Mustang with a license plate reading, I am KP. He would often be surrounded by hipster-type groupies. They'd show up at all of his gigs, and once in a while they'd rent a tour bus and go on a little tour with Corla of all the remaining lounges in San Gabriel Valley and further on. Sometimes Corla would find an organ he could play. There was a joke circling around Corla's fans that when Corla was on television he never spoke, but that now he wouldn't stop talking about India, the old days, and the meaning of life. In 1994, he played himself in Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Corla continued to play, practically right up to the end, but ultimately, diabetes and old age caught up with him. His last performance in Los Angeles was on February 14, 1997, at the Luna Park Club, and in the Bay Area in 1998, at Bimbo's. It was a renovated lounge with red interior, clown paintings, and a mermaid swimming around in an aquarium over the bar, it was appropriate. Corla Pandit died on October 2nd, 1998 at the Petaluma Valley Hospital. And it wasn't until his death that the really amazing story about his life was brought to light. For as we know now, the amazing Corla Pandit was really the amazing John Ronald Red, not from New Delhi, but from Missouri. Born not from an Indian bureaucrat and his French wife, but from an African-American, Reverend Ernest S. Redd, and his wife, Doesha Onina Johnson. 
All of Ernest and Doisha's children were musically and artistically inclined, but John's talent seemed to shine the brightest. And with these talents, he eventually reinvented himself, not once, but twice. John Redd graduated high school in Columbia, Missouri in 1937, and in 1938 he was working for the Central Broadcast Company in Des Moines, Iowa. In 1939, he moved to California and lived with his sister Frances. Somewhere between then and 1940, John made his first change. By 1940, John was going by Juan Ronaldo. His Ronaldo persona allowed him to join the Musicians' Union, which was not open to blacks, and he could also get many more varied gigs. In 1943, Ronaldo was working as a staff organist at radio station KMPC and as a staff organist and clearance agent for NBC, earning $100 per week. Also in 43, he became one of the first musical personalities to be put on radio transcription discs, which were sent all around the country for later airplay. John met and then married Beryl Debison, who worked for Disney Animation in the effects division. They had to get married in Tijuana because mixed marriages were not allowed until 1948 in California. John, as Ronaldo, continued to perform around Southern California, building a reputation. By 1946, he had been in the Rudy Valley Show and was on the Jubilee Radio Program, a radio show for African-American servicemen. Ronaldo, curiously, was already sporting a turban at this time. Maybe after the Zoot Suit riots, he wanted to look a little more ambiguous. Who knows? But in 1948, it was Corla Pandant. But in 1948, it was Corla Pandant who was listed as the musical director for Shandu the Magician, not Juan Ronaldo. John and his wife, Beryl, created this new character. Beryl created the makeup and costume, and John created the history and the affectations, including a British accent. So Mr. Pantit was born. Over the years, the persona grew, though, until there was no more John, even around family sometimes. His children were never told and were not allowed to visit their own grandparents. Neither were his new friends and his co-workers. But John's talent and showmanship did not have to be faked. They were real. So there you have it. Part of the story of three great men. John Red, Juan Ronaldo, and of course, Corla Pandit. Let's go out with one of Corla's versions of an old standard. The storm clouds drift away, and in their place a rainbow stretches high across the sky. A promise? No. Rather say a ray of hope for that brighter day when men fulfilled their dreams by peaceful, real, soul-satisfying means, and not by gold from rainbow beams.
Otto Preminger presents Bunny Lake is Missing. What suspense? Oh, Lawrence Olivier is immense. I just want to find one simple thing. One small, simple proof that Bunny Lake exists. Come on, time! Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! The zombies are there! That's us! That's me! That's him! That's he! Carol Lindley is keen as a knife. Care delay will give you the time of your life. Come on, time! Come on, time for the show! The clock will tell you when to go. While the show's on, can you get in? No! Come on time! Please come on time. My name is Ronald Reagan. Last year, the contributions of 16 million Americans to the crusade for freedom made possible the World Freedom Bell, symbol of hope and freedom to the communist-dominated peoples of Eastern Europe, and built this powerful 135,000-watt Radio Free Europe transmitter in Western Germany. This station daily pierces the Iron Curtain with the truth, answering the lies of the Kremlin and bringing a message of hope to millions trapped behind the Iron Curtain. Grateful letters from listeners smuggled past the secret police express thanks to Radio Free Europe for identifying communist quislings and informers by name. The Crusade for Freedom is your chance and mine to fight communism. Join now by sending your contributions to General Clay, Crusade for Freedom, Empire State Building, New York City. Or join in your local community. Well now, ain't this an elegant neighborhood? All the residents dress so fine. One day off the boat am I with a job that's nearly mine. Tis a job with an elegant millionaire and his elegant family. Today I move from immigrant to high society. Now you may call that luck, and you may call it fortune, but me, myself, I call it fortuosity, that's me byword, fortuosity, me, a twinkle in the eye word, sometimes castles fall to the ground. But that's where four-leaf clovers are found Fortuosity, lucky chances Fortuitious little happy happenstances I don't worry, cause everywhere I see that every bit of life is lit by fortuosity. Fortuosity, 
gets me onward. Fortuosity and me never feel a long word. Round the corner, under a tree. Good fortune's waiting, just wait and see. Fortuosity, lucky chances. Fortuitous little happy happenstances. I keep smiling, cause my philosophy is do your best and leave the rest to fortuosity. Is do your best and leave the rest to fortune. Well, tonight we're going to talk about um, Disney live action features. And, uh, you know, I thought they started like in the 50s or the post war times when there was money tied up in, in England and so they had to use it there. And But when I think about it, the Alice comedies, uh, the first movies, cartoons made uh, when Walt Disney started his own studios was a live action girl with cartoon all around it. So that's a live action. But the next one came up in Song of the South and then So Dear to My Heart and then the 50s with Treasure Island. So, And the reason why we're doing this little history lesson is we're not just talking about all the different movies. We're talking about... Sort of oddball movies that get forgotten. Uh, I guess they're going to play them on uh, Disney, Disney Plus. Plus. I think one of ours is from there, but most of them that we're talking about now are not even on, on Disney Plus right now. So and they, they probably will eventually, so if you just wait around yes. and you have it, then you can, you can watch them. We used to see them. You know, some of them they never released again from the original release, but they would have... Like at schools or whatever, the 16-millimeter prints, and they would play them. So sometimes that's the first time. Sometimes it'd be at drive-ins because they would still have the original films from the first release, and they'd be they'd show them way later. And most of the time, though, you'd see this kind of cut up on the Wonderful World of Disney or the Wonderful World of Color, whichever version you saw as a kid. And uh, they, they sometimes would show them on the, when the Disney Channel first came yeah, out. Yeah, when the Disney Channel came out. So then, I mean, actually, they should have showed more of them, and they didn't. It's kind of a weird thing, because they would show... Well, they were still stuck in the time when they would make their money. Well, at first, re-showing them, bringing them back to the theater, and then video. So they were still making so much video money on video, they didn't want to... And then, of course, they would... From the very beginning <laughs> until now, they re-release them, like the special, special, special edition. I don't think they'd be making much money on the movies we're going about to talk about, to be honest. <laughs> hey. Well, they all have to be something we love and think are good and not crappy <laughs> and not so bad they're good to fall yeah, into our category. Speak for yourself. Hey. <laughs> uh, well, anyway. Um, we'll begin with me. <laughs> and I'm going to do Kidnapped. Kidnapped is one I never saw at the theater. It came out too early um, in the uh, 60s. I think it was 1960. And uh, But they played it a lot of times in The Wonderful World of Disney. And that it's such a good gem. It's like a really good that's version a good movie, of Kidnapped. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
uh, it stars James MacArthur. He's the guy from Swiss Family Robinson who was the oldest boy. And, and of course, he was Dano on Hawaii Five-0. Yeah. Book him, Dano. Book him, Dano. Uh, and then, well, and then there is um, Peter Finch from Network. I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. And I'm not going to take it anymore. Anyway, he's pretty, it's a buddy picture between the two. But it's the old Robert Louis Stevenson story about a guy who goes... Um, Back to the family manor to find, to you know, pretty much to get a piece of his inheritance. And uh, John Lowry is his conniving uncle, which is living in a, he's a very miserly Scotsman in a rundown castle. And um, uh, invites him in and doesn't know what to do with him. And then he says, well, you know what, you can have your treasure. It's the top floor. And he goes up, it's all dark, and he's running real quick. And suddenly there is no top floor. It gives out, and he was trying to get the kid to die. And anyway, that doesn't work. So the next day says, okay, we're going to meet some people. Going to go downtown and meet some people to, to, you know, to get the paperwork set out so you get your share of the inheritance. Well, he takes them and he gets them kidnapped. <laughs> Has them put on a ship. So that's where the adventure begins. But they did a really good version of this. I mean, Peter Finch and him is so great. They meet on board where Peter Finch is... Uh, a prisoner there and they both fight their way out because he wants to get out of being kidnapped and then they get on off on the shore they filmed all of this in scotland this was one of the ones they had to use the money that they had in uh in the british isles because they they had a lie you couldn't take it out because they wanted you know they were hurting they wanted you to spend it there so peter tool makes a little uh oh, <laughs> cameo thing yeah. it's a really cool movie Really well done. And, you know, the guy who directed it, his name is Robert Stevenson. And he did Darby O'Gill and the Little People and Mary Poppins and the 1937 King Solomon's Mind. So you go, well, no wonder. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a really good movie. Except for the, it's ever since The Wonderful World of Disney, I haven't seen it anywhere. They had it, I guess, on tape. Maybe they had a DVD. But... When you ask around, most people haven't seen it. They don't know what you're talking about if they're under 30. Well, <laughs> so. I mean, come on, I haven't seen it. That's crazy. I mean, I guess we had older parents, so, I mean, I did. Well, we you just had... watched The Wonderful World of Disney. But I'm saying under 30. There was... there was No, a... but you watched that before I was born, Frank. So, I mean, that's, you know... Well, they kept playing it until... When they brought it back with Eisner, they weren't playing that stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, guess when that was. It was like... Yes, so... Anyway. I was, you know, seven when they brought that back. Or anyway, ten. it's it's a forgotten gem by most people anyway. So, James, what's your next one? So, my first one is Lieutenant Robinson, or, yeah, Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, U.S. Navy. And uh, it's a Dick Van Dyke vehicle, and... And that's what we can say for. It. <laughs> oh no, I remember it as being really good. No, I I think I don't. It's a little racist. I, I, I don't know this for sure, <laughs> but I think they definitely got. I they were either they were inspired or they got the same writers as the cartoons to write this movie and said, okay, we're going to write a bunch <laughs> of stuff because there are cartoon gags in this film that that uh, that Dick Van Dyke pulls off. It's not a bad thing, but it's. Like he's reading the manual, and then the manual starts getting read by um, by a narrator, and he's responding like Donald Duck would respond to the oh, narrator. Oh, it's a weird, or whatever. it's a weird film. And That's why it's a hidden gem, but, but <laughs> because it's not a normal Disney movie. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that that's exactly what they did in those cartoons. Ex 
Exactly. Well, it also has the weird ending. You know, the so, sort of... Uh, yeah, so it starts off by... Uh, Dick Van Dyke is a Navy pilot, and he... Uh, has to abandon his plane. That's like the first three minutes. He gets in, boom, he's abandoned his plane. The next 15 minutes of this movie is him doing basically gags in a little rubber boat because he's, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, I don't even remember he, that part. He's, he's, uh, you know, basically out in the middle of the ocean in a, in a raft that, and I don't know how, I, I'm assuming that this is actually true, that the lifeboat is the size of his body. I mean, it's tiny. Because I guess it has to fit in a in a plane, so it, it is it is it is one gag after another. He's reading a you know how to uh, survive in the you know in the water and you know it's, it's a manual and the the manual start it has like a narrator and he's responding to that and and then also there's a whole uh, shark gag and they and they show real shark footage and cut it back and forth and so so he hits the top of the the shark and he has a knife and he goes oh i'll show him and he has a knife of course he pokes a hole in his boat and then he has to do you know jump out and fix that then he's almost uh he's almost starved you know he's not almost starved he well he you know he doesn't have any food and then but he's almost uh you know gonna die of thirst and then it starts raining so that that saves him but finally after 15 minutes of that, he gets washed up. And, it, and it's a good 15 minutes. He means him being Dick Van Dyke. I don't doing, know. That sounds doing good. Doing gags. He's like, he, uh, he, he said, uh, he sleepwalks off the boat into the water. <laughs> like, oh, God. Let me just Dick Van Dyke doing Pratt Falls. Like, it's fun. So that's a good so thing. Go with it, Dick. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Definitely. Keep the film running. 100%. 100%. This was a vehicle for Dick Van Dyke to screw around with. And it, it's not bad. But. But uh, so that's the first fifteen minutes. Then he gets to the island, and um, he, he makes a, a little uh, shelter for himself, and then starts living on the island. And, and uh, he ends up, of all things, finding an abandoned, washed-up Japanese submarine. And on the Japanese submarine is a chimpanzee yeah, <laughs> from, like, from space. Yeah, so it's one of the chimpanzees <laughs> from space. He goes, "You're famous, you know. They're they're gonna want to they're gonna want to know you." And he he's got like a. Yeah, he's got an outfit on, but he's got... Then the hilarity ensues Yeah, them playing chess and... They're doing all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, it's it's as what what you would expect Dick Van Dyke reacting to a chimpanzee. And and uh, anyways, they have all kinds of stuff on the on the submarine. They got, they got fireworks, they got flares, they got, you know, a pump. They got all kinds of stuff. So he reads, he's got manuals on how to build... Like basically a pagoda. They build a pagoda, a Japanese style pagoda, and they're living in there. And they they build this. They they call it like a mail shoot, and it's just him putting writing letters to his fiance in a bottle, and it shoots down a <laughs> a thing of bamboo to the ocean. That's and it says U.S. mail, and it flushes like a toilet, and then sends it out to the ocean. And and they build a golf course because they find golf golf clubs. So it's it's all that kind of stuff. But one gag after another, and then then he meets. Uh, a a uh, a gal that comes to the to the gets get banished to the island and she's she's a um, from another island from, from another island but she's like a Pacific Islander basically you can't tell because you're not supposed to know where it's from and uh, he calls her Wednesday instead of Friday <laughs> right like Robinson Crusoe and then so there's a whole bunch of gags on him trying to figure out you know them trying to speak to each other and he finds out that she speaks English. 
and she find he finds out that his his she wouldn't marry the who the chief wanted choose the chief's daughter wouldn't marry who the chief well, don't wanted, give it all away you know? <laughs> the whole movie they, anyway so <laughs> you, the, I think people should see this anyway it does have so kind the, of a bummer of an ending a weird ending not that anyone dies or anything but it's almost like a nihilist ending when he gets back. To the, and nobody respects him. They they, they all like the chimp. <laughs> he sees all this band and they're all having a hoopla. And he thinks it's for him. And they all go with the chimp and then leave him behind. Because <laughs> the chimp is the the long last chimp that they need from the you know that they're doing experiments on, sending him to space. So anyway, yeah, uh, it's worth seeing. I hope they bring it on the Disney Plus. I think they will eventually. Yeah, and you know what? They should anything with Dick Van Dyke in it is is going to be watchable better in my than opinion. that yeah so all right frank what's your well, next? we go from uh hilarity to high adventure this is the wild country it came out in 1970 and this is filmed really well it's a it's an when you watch it it seems like it wasn't filmed in 1970 it should be a movie from the 50s or something it's that style of a movie um a guy named robert totten he directed it he's known for the quick and the dead did a lot of episodes of Gunsmoke and uh, the other writer with um, the screenplay I mean is Calvin Clement Jr. and he wrote for television a lot of did a Wild Wild West and Kung Fu and later Knight Rider and Matt Houston and another guy called Paul Savage and he did a lot from the 50s all the way through the 90s Streets of San Francisco Dukes of Hazard anyway and it was from a book called by Ralph Moody called Little Britches and it's this family that moves out, um, you know, from the Midwest, where it's civilized, out into the uh, the wilderness of Montana, Wyoming type of area. And they are led to believe that it's going to be this great farm and have a, everything, you know, a barn and a house. Well, when they get there, it's all dilapidated. And the water, unfortunately, is controlled by a neighbor that's up... Uh, in the mountains and has his own ranch out there so there is a there's a lot of um conflict between that and between nature the actor who's the lead the the father that's stephen forrest um ah you everyone's seen him if they look he's been in all sorts of stuff he was in the longest day and mommy dearest and spies like us and it's got this red arbund hair. And the mother is Vera Miles, and, and she's the sister that lives in Psycho. <laughs> and oh. and she's also the, the love um, interest in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. She did a bunch of stuff. Oh, I was going to say, that's yeah, that's from Man yeah. Shot Liberty Valance. And then Ron Howard and Clint Howard, the brothers together. And they're great together. They're really, uh, it's when, um, you know, a kid and a teenager, basically, at that at that stage. And then Jack Elam as a neighbor, Thompson, and then this Frank DeCova, who is Italian, but he always played Indians, um, even in F Troop. <laughs> anyway, he's two dogs. And they're, that's a great character study, the neighbors. They're trying to help him out, and they're just like mountain men that live up <laughs> somewhere and come down sometimes. And the, the kid's always finding animals. He left the dog back called Ralph. They had to leave him back home. So everything he finds, a hawk, a colt, Everything's Ralph. He names him after his dog. It's Ralph. Anyway, um, there's a tornado that comes. There's a shootout that's trying to break the dam with the water. There's getting the you know the the law involved. There's a lot of good action movie in this movie, and it's it's pretty well done. 
It's a good movie. It's just weird out of place for 1970. It does not seem like a movie from there. It's like a time capsule from the 40s or 50s. Anyway, I don't know anyone who's heard of it, you know, when you talk about it. They, they would play it once in a while in the wonderful world of Disney. I saw it first in a drive-in <laughs> uh, years ago when I was a kid. Maybe when it came out, actually. Um, anyway, that's my second one. And I, I recommend it for as soon as it comes on the... Uh, Disney Plus. What's your next one, James? My next one is definitely goes deep into the vault of Disney. It's called Castaway Cowboy. And I hadn't even heard of it until we looked up the list and, and uh, I was able to uh, to watch it. Um, that, the, that's one that's with, actually on Disney it's Plus. With, yeah, this is the only one that's on Disney Plus, but I, I would be shocked if... One percent of Disney Plus <laughs> watched it. <laughs> ha, ha, no, I mean they could watch it now, but they had seen it before it came on. Uh, you know Disney Plus. It's it's nineteen seventy four was when it made was made, and it stars James Garner. And um, it's one of these things where this is not a, a, a complaint or or something against it but i wondered why this movie got made <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what all these had yeah, the question and, for all these and movies. i th i think that that's that has a yeah running theme through through this you right because honestly the story is uh you know it starts off really fast cuz they're on hawaii and it's a boy and his mother and they run a potato farm. Uh, they live kind of with all their workers. Like It's not a collective, but they, they know everybody really well. And so uh, they have a bunch of Hawaiian workers that work for them. And uh, they're down at the ocean, you know, doing some, you know, getting some abalone or something like that. And, and all of a sudden, a, a, a man washes up and, it's, and it happens to be James Gardner. James Gardner. And he turns out to be a cowboy from Texas. And uh, what happens is that they keep on getting their potato farm overrun by cattle, by these wild cattle that are on there, on Hawaii. And the wife played by, or the, the uh, she's she's a widow, and she's played by uh, Vera Miles. And her name is Henrietta McAvoy in, in the uh, in the movie. That's the same lady <laughs> that, that was in the, the wild country. Vera Miles? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Vera Miles, she, uh, her husband has died. Two years prior, and she, you know, owes a lot of money to the bank, and the banker is trying to woo her and trying to get her to marry him, uh, and saying, "Oh yeah, I'll just get rid of your debt." And she's like, uh, "Sounded good to me, but apparently it was against her <laughs> principles. I don't know, okay, what the hell kind of reasoning that is." But and then she has a, uh, a boy named Booten. That's his name, Booten. That's his real name, Booten. And because uh, the reason why I mentioned this is James Garner through the whole film is calling him something different. <laughs> Batten, come here, Bowden, or, you know, whatever. And he's get the kids getting all mad or whatever. Anyways, they decide he, he kind of convinces her to turn the, the ranch into a cattle ranch. And he trains these Hawaiians to be cattlemen. And they get horses and then they, they, uh, they end up, so they, you know, there's all a bunch of, shots of of them learning to rope and ride as you can imagine they're like failing miserably at first and then little by little they get better but the one thing i will say and i'll say this about these films and all disney films no matter what 
the quality of it. People can rag and, you know, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, people that, you know, say, you know, it's live action. Disney is a joke in that period of time. Not, not Treasure Island. Or there's, there's some great 20,000 Leagues of the Sea, but these kind of films. But I'm telling you, everything, I think anyways, is pretty innovative. And I think that they did a lot of things. And, and the wildlife, basically cinematography of this, of them roping and riding and doing it, it was all stuntmen. It was all people doing it. And it's all that f- filming. It's not this, oh, like we're riding you know, on a green screen or something. No, it's all them doing it. I I thought James Gardner wrestled down a bull. <laughs> I mean, I unless they did Maybe some, he did. He was kind did, of a stuntman. They man. did some fancy things. But I think he grabbed a bull and, and pulled him down. So... That's the one thing I will say about all these, and especially about this one. I think the animal photography and the, them dealing with the the ranch and the the cattle wrestling and all that very well shot and very and and kind of kind of probably whoever did this got other jobs and and we don't even know what that affected. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that that's that's why these things are important. And one of the things that was crazy is that. They have these canoes that, you know, like you know, a Hawaiian canoe that you would think yeah. of. And they ride these horses with the cattle roped. And they ride them out into the ocean. They tie them to these canoes. They show this. This is actually them doing this. They canoe out to a real boat. And they hoist that cattle up out of the water. And Now, that may have really been done. They, no, they did it all. No, they I didn't. mean back oh, in the time. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, that's how... Because there was a lot of cattle ranching on the Big Island. No, that, that's that's how it was done. But I'm just saying they did that. They recreated the whole thing. And I, I thought that was pretty impressive. So they got their cattle to market, saved the farm, and he ends up calling the kid Bootin' finally. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's no, a happy the ending. Movie. It's a happy ending. <laughs> now they don't have to watch it. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, it's the one that's on so, right now on uh, Disney+. Plus. So Castaway Cowboy is uh, our next film. And I'm going to go on with The Barefoot Executive. And uh, I loved this as a kid. And i I seen it recently. It still holds up to me. But anyway, this is directed by Robert Butler. He did all those uh, Kurt Douglas vehicles, because that's what this is. Only at the time it wasn't a vehicle for him, because he was just new. He'd done some kid stuff for Disney. And these were his college-type movies. He did a computer war tennis shoes and... But then later on, he did, he did pilots for the Blue Knight and Hill Street Blues. He did the pilot for both those shows. The reason they got the man with up, the golden touch. Yes. So there's Kurt uh, Kurt Russell. I'm sorry, did I say Kurt Douglas? It's Kurt Russell. Kurt anyway. Russell. Anyway, same difference. And then Joe <laughs> Flynn, who was also he was like it's, it might as well be a buddy movie with all the Kurt Russell movies because he was Dean Higgins in all of the Dexter oh, Riley films, yeah, yeah. the college ones, and he. And he, if anyone hasn't seen those, they might have seen McHale's Navy. He was Captain Wallace Bington, the one they were always pulling shysters on to. Um, I love that guy. He's such a great character. He kind of plays the same guy all the time, but it's so good. And his last thing he did was Mr. Snoop's on the voice in The Rescuers. But he died pretty fairly young. In 77, he had a heart attack. And oh, man. Down in his pool floating. But... There's also um, Heather North. She's the love interest. And she went on to be the second Daphne in Scooby-Doo. And she's the one that lasted 30 years. And then, the voice. The voice. The voice, yeah. yes. And then there's John Ritter in his first role as oh, a suck-up. <laughs> and, and Harry Morgan. There's a bunch of people. But the premise of this is um, 
Kurt Russell is like this ambitious college student slash, you know, I think he goes to school and then at night he works for the this uh, UBS, which is sort of a struggling uh, United Broadcasting Corporation. It's a network, a small network. And anyway, um, he works for him a very menial manner. I think he runs the films for them to see when they're picking shows. And they got a lot of duds. Well, also at home, their neighbors, he lives with his, his girlfriend and the neighbor, they, they couldn't have. He, I must be thinking something different. <laughs> I was going to say, he doesn't live with his girlfriend. Maybe she's right? there a lot. But anyway, the neighbor, her neighbor, they have a chimp for a pet. We're back to chimps. Oh my gosh. And he notices, he hates it, that she, she's taking care of it when they go up to San Francisco. So he's hating it. And then he finds out the chimp can watch TV and he will he will give a raspberry when he doesn't like something. He'll clap when it's good. And then he notices when he looks the next day, those shows got the highest ratings that he liked. And so he takes them and sits them in, in the screening room and he starts, uh, you know, yaying and, and neighing. And this one thing is Devil Dan, which is the favorite thing, you know, the, the chimp. And so he comes out and says it's his idea. I think we should do Devil Dan. And they're like, no, Devil Dan's garbage. So what he does is he switches the reels so they actually put Devil Dan on. Well, it's a giant hit. And so pretty soon, everything the chimp picks, he takes the credit for. And he's becoming this big executive now because he's the golden boy. He picks all the hits. But this chimp is picking the hits. And, you know, of course, he's making fun of television. And, and, yeah, of uh, course. And then, oh, of course, the other people are worried about their job, and we can't have this guy. We got to look into him. He must have someone else behind him. So there's all kinds of gags of trying to find out. But anyway, um, it's a fun film, and um, it's it's another one where I ask people, "Hey, remember the the Barefoot Executive?" And I get a blank stare. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not on Disney Plus yet, but hopefully soon. So James, what's our next gym? The next gym is the Great Locomotive Chase with, oh, yeah. with Bess Parker. <laughs> nice. And that's based on a real story. Yeah. Because so I saw the actual train from the chase um, in Georgia when I was there. They have it in a museum. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. Anyways, it's the story of the first Medal of Honor recipients. And some of them, as, you, as you'll learn, some of them... Uh, they had both uh, posthumous and the oh. people that the people that survived this crazy thing, and then the people that died. They all got it except for Andrews because he wasn't a an, he wasn't in the ar- army. He you was Fess Parker. Fess Parker guy? was not. He in, got no award because he army. wasn't in the army. Yeah, he might have got the I forget Congressional Medal of Honor or whatever. I forget what the they probably the, didn't have the, that then. the non yeah <laughs> probably not. Anyways, this is a World War. I mean, not World War Two. Sorry, <laughs> it is a Civil War uh, story about two men. This James J. Andrews, played by Fess Parker, and he's a Union spy, and then William Fuller, which just happens to be the engineer of the train that they they oh, heist, they steal they, they steal right. Train. So things starts off by James Andrews gets an idea of stealing a train and then, you know, taking it down the tracks, stopping it every once in a while and destroying the... Oh, burning the bridges and Burning the bridges and it. destroying everything so that they basically destroy their supply chain, right? And uh, so that's the that's that's the idea. So they give him some men and he goes back. They all, they're all in plain clothes and they end up 
in the movie relatively quickly hijacking a train. But during the whole thing, it's pretty obvious. I mean, it's for the Confederate, but this other guy that's the that's the locomotive engineer is just as much as a hero because he tracks them the whole way and 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 foils them. And it's a it's a uh, yeah, it's a failed it's a, mission. It's, they it's never... basically a fail, failed mission. He does a lot, but that guy keeps on. He he gets you know they they take out some uh, you know track. some of the track and he stops the train, but he runs down and gets a horse, gets another place, gets on another train, and keeps on pursuing this guy. So he can't do as much damage as he would like to. Yeah, they don't and, even get to burn down a bridge. And uh, yeah, actually they start. It, but they yeah kind of they pushed they, it out they yeah it doesn't doesn't work and so at the end uh well not even at the end at the middle they it's already failed and so they all you know run scatter and run away which was the plan they were going to scatter and then try to make it back the to the union side yeah the northerners and so what ends up happening is they they catch them all and they they put them in jail and they actually put them in jail in the movie <laughs> and so the second part of the movie is them uh Having it's kind of a jail, you know, breakout, and they actually end up breaking out. Except that Andrews and one other fellow stays behind to fight, make sure that those guys don't get followed. Those guys get out, and Andrews ends up getting hung. And uh, but before before he gets hung, he uh, calls for Fuller, which is the uh, you know the old engineer, and he makes peace with him. He said, you know, in, in years to come. There's going to be a, there, this war is going to be over and there's going to be peace between both, you know, between both our countries and we're going to shake hands. So why don't we just shake hands right now? <laughs> All right, that's fine. And then he gets hung. Now <laughs> hang him. So the frame story was that they were giving him the Medal of Honor and the, this guy Pittenger is uh, explaining it. So, yeah. and then, so at the end, you know, they get the Medal of Honor the, or whatever. The, the, uh, but... The, the crazy thing is, the, and the only reason why there's a museum of it in Georgia is because it was a failed mission and they hanged some Yankees. So that's yeah. the only reason. Well, in the dogged nature of the you know, Confederate oh, yeah. guy, right? Well, I mean, if it would have been succeeded, they wouldn't have had a museum to the... Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is like the Castaway Cowboy... Everything is done for real. They yeah, have the real train, real locomotives. They have locomotives from 1954. I mean, uh, 1854. Yeah, and uh, I think you know, they use they, the real. It's the general. It's the one no they. Expense. I think there's there is ones. No, that they they use trains to portray the. Other oh, trains. okay. Yeah, for sure. Because that's but, the name of the general, and it's the one they made the silent movie correct, of. Yeah. It's used in all sorts of stuff, like the Mickey Mouse cartoon. So in the end, there's a great deal to like about this film, and. They they spent a lot of money on this, and they did you know everything was about sets and them you know jumping out and doing you know breaking the rails up, sending a uh, you know a rail car that's on fire, and the other guy putting the fire out, and you know there's a lot of stunts, there's a lot of everything, and it's all live action, it's all real, so uh, it's a lot to see about or a lot to like about it, anyways. Yes. So that was the great. I don't know about the acting, but <laughs> locomotive chase you put. Do not and now, put down my beloved fest partner. Is that your last one? No. Or, oh, okay. Well, good. I have my last one. And this one, it's it's a very strange one. It's a very weird musical. Um, it came out right after Mary Poppins. They thought they would uh, they didn't use the same director, though. I don't know why. They didn't? Or no, they, they did not. Oh. Um, it has its faults and part of the reason it needs to be edited and I'll tell you at the end the different versions because they did different edited versions but this is The Happiest Billionaire it was from 1967 and 
it was the last one that, that Walt was involved in. He died in the middle of it, so it, he never got to see it to completion. Uh, it was based on a play, The Happiest Millionaire, which was based on a book, My Philadelphia Father by Cordelia Drexel Biddle. Because this was um, the story of Anthony J. Dreskel Biddle is a real man, a really eccentric millionaire. And his daughter wrote a book with the ghostwriter together. And he trained men uh, in hand-to-hand combat for World War One and World War II, uh, you know, with no his own money, you know. <laughs> and um, he was a, a, an amateur boxer. In 1955, he was called the greatest amateur boxer <laughs> there ever was. And he promoted this athletic Christianity, uh, which was an offshoot of muscular Christianity, which is a weird <laughs> combination of physical um, activity and spiritual development. Um, comes out of England. Anyway, and his version was, you know, um, well, the great thing is in the play the, and the musical movie, he does boxing Bible lessons. So they box and... <laughs> And they give readings from the Bible and all these weird shenanigans that the real guy did. They put in the play, and so they put in the musical. So it's a really interesting musical of the of Fred McMurray as this crazy guy. Isn't the the no? I mean, the main character is the butler that gets hired, or is he? He's not the main character, but he's the one it revolves around because. Um, well, I already said that that the you know um, Fred McMurray he's the father, and Greer Garson plays the mother, and and she was the biggest star in the whole movie out of all of them. She was in Mrs. Manover and Pride and Prejudice. Hey, Fred McMurray is pretty big. <laughs> he's pretty big, but she was bigger at her at her height. She was bigger than him in his height. Not in Disney lore. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe so. Tommy Steele would uh, play the Irish butler. John Lawless was the character's name. And he was a rock and roll star from the 50s who turned actor. And he's best known, uh, I don't know, this is another weird movie, first of all, that probably no one's heard of. But uh, Francis Ford Coppola did a musical called Finnegan's Rainbow. And, oh, I know that movie. Yeah, well, this guy, the, the um, Tommy Steele, he played, it was after this movie, and he played a leprechaun in that movie. So, oh, my gosh. But anyway. He, he's great in that film, though. It oh, he's great. Yeah. And John Davidson's in it. He plays Angie, which is which is the boy's name, and Leslie Ann Warren. She she's the one in Victor Victoria and Clue. She's the um, who is it? Mrs. Green. Who is the prostitute or the brothel owner? In Clue? not Miss Scarlet. Miss Scarlet. I think no. yeah, Miss Scarlet. Scarlet yeah. yeah, she's Miss Scarlet. She was in Night Gallery. She was in In Plain Sight. Anyway, lots of stuff. Um, Anyway, that that uh, butler begins with the butler coming into town, and he's he goes to the agency, and oh, they give him this job, you know, because he's always losing butlers. He's always it's a little bit like Life with Father if you've ever seen that movie. Oh yeah. And so he goes to the house, and he's trying to tell people I'm the butler, and then they're always saying, "Well, who are you? Oh, you're the new butler." And they just treat him, and he's like, he hasn't even got the job yet. And it goes through a big part of the movie where he's not hired. He's not even hired. And then suddenly the, the lady gets a phone call and says, well, how do you like the butler? And she's looking at him. And they're doing some weird dance number and stuff at this point. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, he's, he'll be perfect. And then anyway, my favorite thing about this whole movie was he also had a hobby of raising alligators. So we had all these alligators and they would always get loose. Is that a true thing? I don't know. I, I, I didn't. I read, tried to read more about it and I couldn't find anything about the alligators. I think they added that. 
That was wonderful fun, and it's the main reason I like love it. Dancing with an alligator and we're well, one scene. Yes, yes, actually. Um, what happened with this movie is it, it was like 166 minutes long when they first did it. And uh, the ending, there was one more song, and the director did not want it, but the, the CEO of Disney at the time really, really wanted that song in. And it was like the sentimental song that made it drag. There's a few other things that'd be cut out of this movie. Unfortunately, that's that's the... I saw lately the complete uncut version, and it was like, oh, this is great, except for uh, should have ended here. <laughs> but that was the L.A. premiere, and then the New York premiere at Radio uh, City Music Hall, they said, that's too long. So they cut it down to 144 minutes. Well, then it went into wide release, and it was cut down to 117 minutes. Oh, man. So there's all kinds of weird... I saw a version once that was on video, um, and it must have been the 117 because I kept going, hey, there's all these songs missing and stuff. And then I saw the other one the other night I watched it. And the director's cut, the final director's cut. Well, that's what I saw. And anyway, it's still wonderful to me. Um, I, it's also not on Disney Plus, but it's got a lot of great songs. That, that'll be In on fact, Disney Plus. The, the no, song at the new. opening just before we started this conversation that's from The Happiest Millionaire. And we're going to end it with one from uh, The Barefoot Executive. So you can see the, <laughs> the music stylings of these movies. Anyway, yeah, I don't know if you could take the longer version, but I liked it. Just uh, fast forward near the end. So my final one is certainly my favorite, but uh, I don't know if it's yours, but uh, it is Never a Dull Moment. Oh, I love and that And it's movie. from 1968, and it is also a Dick Van Dyke vehicle, but it also has Edward G. Robinson. Yes, and, and a bunch uh, of character actors. And uh, Dorothy Provine is the love interest. Uh, he Dick Van Dyke plays an actor, Jack Albany, who plays gangsters on TV. He's kind of a B B-list, if not C-list, really. Um, and he's mistaken for a notorious, notorious hitman walking home by mob boss Leo Smooth, which is Edgar G. Robinson, and he gets pulled into a, a heist uh, for a famous painting that's kind of, you could tell me, it's called its called The uh, um, the Field of Sunflowers, I think it's I don't called. think it's a real painting. It no, is... no, 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 but it's supposed to be like a Van Gogh yeah, or something. Yeah. But it's giant. It's a giant painting. Yeah, you like mural almost, you know, seventeen by yeah. by uh, you, you know by a, ten uh, or whatever. It's and, and it's in three panels, and he's going to steal it because the gangster's of an art lover, and uh, his particular part of the of the uh, Dick Van Dyke's particular part of what he has to do is kill the guards, <laughs> like because he wants it done by a professional, <laughs> and. Uh, it's complicated by the fact that the uh, real guy shows oh, up. Oh, yeah. Ace. Who's Jack Elam? <laughs> <laughs> and anyways, Dorothy uh, Provine ends up being <laughs> Edward G. Robinson's art teacher. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she comes with private lessons. And during the whole thing, there's all these gags about modern art. And he's... He's, she's teaching him to, oh, just flow and throw the stuff. And it's Edward G. Robinson throwing paint at a, at a canvas, getting all irritated because he really knows how to paint. He goes, I got to paint this for real. She's like, no, 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 let the bro. And he goes, I think that's wonderful. And it's, he goes, I don't. And then the, the painting he wants to steal is actually a real 
you yeah. know, chose real flowers or whatever. And, and actually, whoever they got to do the painting, it is a very nice paint. I mean, it was cool. Yeah. And so, uh, again, it's all a bunch of pratfalls for Dick Van Dyke and, you know, him being a tough guy, but then also wilting at the fact that, you know, when the real guy shows up and they get locked in a room together and... It's he, also a thing where everything accidentally happens to make him look good. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's not only the wrong man. It's it's one of those where, yeah, he just gets lucky. Like the guy trips over something in the dark, knocks himself out, and it looks like he goes, Say, Ace, you're the, you're the real Ace. You're great. You know, and... <laughs> and uh, the whole thing, the guards fall and knock themselves yeah, he, out. He just wants to tap him on the shoulder, and he just happens to get him a nerve. Man, they get afraid of him a little bit. Anyway, that it's a great movie. It's an unusual movie, though. It's weird for him, and it doesn't seem like a Disney movie. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. The actual story they came up with is more like a regular movie at the time, you know. It got generally good press. I think the... Uh the Los Angeles Times, Charles Chaplin, of all people, that's, said that uh, he said that it was the breeziest and most likable Disney comedy in some time. With a verb and sophistication which can engage the favoring interest of the grown-ups as well as the Moppets. <laughs> so, I don't know if one... the kids would even like it, actually. Little kids, anyway. Yeah, the the funny thing is when they're in the, the art museum... They have a big mobile. <laughs> so they keep on. It's they, an actual Alexander they, Calder mobile. Oh, they just do a replica yeah. of it or whatever, yeah. and they're spinning around on it, and it's like becomes a big, you know, prop in their in their you know comedy scene. Anyways, it's a very good movie, and you know, of course, Edward G. Robinson is a great actor, and Dick Van Dyke is a good actor. So everybody, and then everybody is, you know, they're all mobsters or whatever, and they're all played over the top, so everything's great. It's a good film. I definitely recommend it. Never a dull moment. 1968. All right. Well, there you have it. There's some examples, anyway, of uh, Disney live-action movies that don't get too much love. But I think they will once they bring them out on Disney Plus and people can see them all over again.
wind up that he'll wind up number one. And the whole wide world will know that he's around. No other cats get up tight and try to put him down. He's gonna make it. He's gonna make it. He's gonna take this cockeyed world and shake it. He's gonna show them he's a winner in the end. With a little luck. And a little bitty barefoot friend. And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. The Return of Encyclopedia Brown In the Case of Bugs' Kidnapping Meany would have liked to get even with Encyclopedia by punching him in the eye four or five times. But he didn't dare for two reasons. The first reason was the quick left fist of a pretty ten-year-old Sally Kimball. The second reason was Sally's right. It was even quicker than her left. One day, Sally had seen Bugs bullying a Cub Scout. Stop it, she had cried, hopping off her bike. Go powder your nose, Bugs had jeered. Zam went Sally's right. Wham went Bugs against the ground. He bounced up, red as a Jersey apple. Sally's rights and lefts were a blur. Zing, zap, zam. Bugs was something of a blur, too. He went up and down like a yo-yo. Wham, whap, womp. Finally, Sally dusted his chin with an uppercut and left him panting on his back. The news raced through the neighborhood. A girl had laid out big bad bugs meanie flatter than a smoked herring. The next day, Encyclopedia invited the new champion to join the Brown Detective Agency as a junior partner. Sally accepted on the spot. And Encyclopedia stopped worrying about bugs meanie's muscles. But bugs didn't stop plotting. He just plodded farther behind Encyclopedia's back, and harder. Look out for him, warned Sally. He's like a set of false teeth, always trying to get even. I sort of hope he keeps trying, said Encyclopedia. Business would fall off without bugs causing trouble. Trouble has just arrived, whispered Sally. 
police car drew up by the Brown Detective Agency. Out stepped Bugs, his mother, and Officer Carlson. The meanies have brought a serious charge against you, Officer Carlson said to Encyclopedia. This little do-gooder here was part of the gang that kidnapped me, said Bugs. Encyclopedia and Sally stared at each other. Tell him what you overheard, dear, said Mrs. Meany. I heard the kidnappers say Encyclopedia Brown was going to pick up the money, said Bugs. I don't know what he's talking about, said Encyclopedia. What kidnappers? What money? Don't play dumb, sneered Bugs. The ransom money. Start from the beginning, Officer Carlson said to Bugs. About five o'clock yesterday afternoon, began Bugs, I was walking home from the clubhouse. I was minding my own business when somebody hit me on the head. He might have been killed, said Mrs. Meany. Bugs put on a brave look and continued. When I woke up, I was lying in a dark room without lights or windows. Could you hear anything? asked Officer Carlson. Yeah, said Bugs. I heard the kidnappers talking in the next room. They had telephoned my mother. She had agreed to pay $1,000 ransom money for my safe return. Mrs. Meany broke in. Around six o'clock last night, I got a telephone call. The voice at the other end said to bring $1,000 to the old railroad station at 9 o'clock that very night. I was not to call the police. A boy would meet me and take the money. That boy was Encyclopedia Brown, the pride of Idaville, said Bugs. I heard the kidnappers say he was to get $100 for picking up the ransom money. That's a lie, said Encyclopedia. Quiet down, said Officer Carlson. You'll have your turn. Go on, Bugs. When Encyclopedia didn't show up with the money, said Bugs, the kidnappers figured he'd kept it all for himself. They got angrier every minute. I brought as much money as I could get together on such short notice to the old railroad station, said Mrs. Meany. Nobody met me. I guess our little Mr. Smarty lost his nerve at the last minute, said Bugs. But I didn't lose mine. I knew the kidnappers might kill me, they were so angry. I looked for a way to break out. My poor baby, said Mrs. Meany. Bugs made a face and went on. I felt around the dark room where the kidnappers had put me, he said. I found a crowbar. I thought I'd take the hinges off the locked door, but no luck. The hinges were on the other side of the door. How terrible, sobbed Mrs. Meany. For Pete's sakes, Ma, let me finish, exclaimed Bugs. He licked his lips and said, I decided to break the lock and fight my way out. Before I could start, I heard the kidnappers coming toward the door, 
I planned to hit the first one who came into the room with the crowbar, take his gun, and shoot my way to freedom. Bugs drew a deep breath. I never swung the crowbar. The door was unlocked and pushed open hard. It swung into the room, knocking me down. I looked up. By the hall light, I saw a man pointing a gun at me. Mrs. Meany gasped and wrung her hands. It looked like my number was up, said Bugs, rolling his eyes to heaven. Instead, the kidnappers drove me to the place where they kidnapped me and let me go. Mrs. Meany muttered about a miracle. Officer Carlson said to Encyclopedia, Is this some kind of prank? Yes, sir, answered Encyclopedia. It is. Sally covered her mouth, stunned. It was probably one of the tigers who telephoned Mrs. Meany to say bugs had been kidnapped, explained Encyclopedia. The rest is all made up. I'm no liar, shouted Bugs. I heard the kidnappers say you were hired to pick up the ransom money. You never showed up at the old railroad station. You got scared. My mother is right. I'm lucky to be alive. I wasn't part of the kidnap gang, said Encyclopedia, because there was no kidnapping. Except for one slip, you might have made everyone believe you, Bugs. What was Bugs' slip? Bugs said, I thought I'd take the hinges off the locked door, but no luck. The hinges were on the other side of the door. But then he said the door swung into the room, knocking me down. Impossible. Doors swing toward their hinges, so the door of the locked room would have swung into the hall, not into the room. When trapped by his error, Bugs confessed. The kidnapping was a fake. Bugs had dreamed it up to get even with Encyclopedia. Some of the most famous fashion designers in the U.S. today have been asked to forecast what Eve will look like in A.D. 2000. One idea is a dress that can be adapted for morning, afternoon or evening. It's the sleeves, what does it? Apparently in A.D. 2000 we shall be having a hair-raising time. Yet another designer goes so far as to believe that skirts will disappear entirely. Shoes will have cantilever heels and an electric belt will adapt the body to climatic changes. The lightly clad woman of tomorrow, ooh, swish, will move in an atmosphere that's scientifically kept at the right temperature. 
the future bride in a wedding dress of glass. What the groom will wear, apart from a worried look, isn't mentioned. A dress of aluminium, with a sash to change it for afternoon or evening, and an electric headlight to help her to find an honest man. As for him, if he matters at all, he'll be fitted with a telephone, a radio, and containers for coins, keys, and candy for cuties. No one can clearly foresee the city of the future, but the appearance of any city of any period of history is a direct outcome of the social, economic, and technical conditions then existing. The cities of the future would be laid out to a master plan. Streets and buildings no longer haphazard, but harmoniously related. Structural ingenuity would, of course, go on producing unusual forms, perhaps suspension bridge apartment houses. These would surely provide wide vistas for the bridge dwellers and perhaps gratify the very human desire for novelty and romance. There must be broad avenues, providing trees and ease of movement, with light and pure air for all buildings. Perhaps the master stroke of planning would be to segregate on one hand future highly efficient automatic industrial centers, producing all our needed goods and distributing them in abundance. New centers of leisure would arise, around which we would live, fully participating in the sports, the arts and the sciences, in fact, in all the activities which make life worth living. Here's a peep through a future window of the world. This monster plane will carry 600 passengers, and a huge wing and double fuselage houses luxurious lounges and reading rooms. It will speed from London to New York in a day. Future aerodromes will be centers for highway, skyle, and rail carriers. Landing on top of the huge aerodrome, planes will taxi to a ramp, descend to a lower level, and discharge their passengers. At still lower levels, motor highways, railroads, and pneumatic mail tubes will have terminals. The Wish Under the palm of one hand, the child became aware of the scab of an old cut on his kneecap. He bent forward to examine it closely. A scab was always a fascinating thing. It presented a special challenge he was never able to resist. Yes, he thought, I will pick it off, even if it isn't ready, even if the middle of it sticks, even if it hurts like anything. With a fingernail, he began to explore cautiously around the edges of the scab. He got a nail underneath it, and when he raised it, but ever so slightly, it suddenly came off. The whole hard brown scab came off beautifully, leaving an interesting little circle of smooth red skin. Nice, very nice indeed. He rubbed the circle and it didn't hurt. He picked up the scab, put it on his thigh, and flipped it with a finger so that it flew away and landed on the edge of the carpet, the enormous red and black and yellow carpet that stretched the whole length of the hall from the stairs on which he sat to the front door in the distance. A tremendous carpet, Bigger than the tennis lawn, much bigger than that. He regarded it gravely, setting his eyes upon it with mild pleasure. He had never really noticed it before, but now, all of a sudden, the colors seemed to brighten mysteriously and spring out at him in a most dazzling way. You see, he told himself, I know how it is. The red parts of the carpet are red-hot lumps of coal. What I must do is this. I must walk all the way along it to the front door without touching them. If I touch the red, I will be burnt. As a matter of fact, I will be burnt up completely. And the black parts of the carpet? Yes, the black parts are snakes, poisonous snakes, adders mostly, and cobras, thick like tree trunks round the middle. And if I touch one of them, I'll be bitten and I'll die before tea time. 
and if I get across safely without being burnt and without being bitten, I will be given a puppy for my birthday tomorrow. He got to his feet and climbed higher up the stairs to obtain a better view of this vast tapestry of color and death. Was it possible? Was there enough yellow? Yellow was the only color he was allowed to walk on. Could it be done? This was not a journey to be undertaken lightly. The risks were far too great for that. The child's face, a fringe of white gold hair, two large blue eyes, a small pointed chin, peered down anxiously over the banisters. The yellow was a bit thin in places, and there were one or two widish gaps, but it did seem to go all the way along to the other end. For someone who had only yesterday triumphantly traveled the whole length of the brick path from the stables to the summer house without touching the cracks, this carpet thing should not be too difficult. Except for the snakes. The mere thought of snakes sent a fine electricity of fear running like pins down the backs of his legs and under the soles of his feet. He came slowly down the stairs and advanced to the edge of the carpet. He extended one small sandaled foot and placed it cautiously upon a patch of yellow. Then he brought the other foot up, and there was just enough room for him to stand with the two feet together. There. He had started. His bright oval face was curiously intent, a shade whiter perhaps than before, and he was holding his arms out sideways to assist his balance. He took another step, lifting his foot high over a patch of black, aiming carefully with his toe for a narrow channel of yellow on the other side. When he had completed the second step, he paused to rest, standing very stiff and still. The narrow channel of yellow ran forward unbroken for at least five yards, and he advanced gingerly along it, bit by bit, as though walking a tightrope. Where it finally curled off sideways, he had to take another long stride, this time over a vicious-looking mixture of black and red. Halfway across, he began to wobble. He waved his arms around wildly, windmill fashion, to keep his balance, and he got across safely and rested again on the other side. He was quite breathless now, and so tense he stood high on his toes all the time, arms out sideways, fists clenched. He was on a big safe island of yellow. There was lots of room on it. He couldn't possibly fall off, and he stood there resting, hesitating, waiting, wishing he could stay forever on this big safe yellow island. But the fear of not getting the puppy compelled him to go on. Step by step he edged further ahead, and between each one he paused to decide exactly where he should put his foot. Once he had a choice of ways, either to left or right, and he chose the left because although it seemed the more difficult, there was not so much black in that direction. The black was what had made him nervous. He glanced quickly over his shoulder to see how far he had come. Nearly halfway. There could be no turning back now. He was in the middle, and he couldn't turn back, and he couldn't jump off sideways either because it was too far, and when he looked at all the red and all the black that lay ahead of him, he felt that old, sudden, sickening surge of panic in his chest, like last Easter time, that afternoon when he got lost all alone in the darkest part of Piper's wood. He took another step, placing his foot carefully upon the only little piece of yellow within reach, and this time the point of the foot came within a centimeter of some black. It wasn't touching the black. He could see it wasn't touching. He could see the small line of yellow separating the toe of his sandal from the black. But the snake stirred as though sensing his nearness, and raised its head and gazed at the foot with bright beady eyes, watching to see if it was going to touch. I'm not touching you. You mustn't bite me. You know I'm not touching you. Another snake slid up noiselessly beside the first, raised its head, two heads now, two pairs of eyes staring at the foot, gazing at a little naked place just below the sandal strap where the skin showed through. The child went high up on his toes and stayed there, 
frozen stiff with terror. It was minutes before he dared to move again. The next step would have to be a really long one. There was this deep curling river of black that ran clear across the width of the carpet, and he was forced by his position to cross it at its widest part. He thought first of trying to jump it, but decided he couldn't be sure of landing accurately on the narrow band of yellow on the other side. He took a deep breath, lifted one foot, and inch by inch he pushed it out in front of him, far, far out, then down and down until at last the tip of his sandal was across and resting safely on the edge of the yellow. He leaned forward, transferring his weight to his front foot. Then he tried to bring the back foot up as well. He strained and pulled and jerked his body, but the legs were too wide apart and he couldn't make it. He tried to get back again. He couldn't do that either. He was doing the splits and he was properly stuck. He glanced down and saw this deep, curling river of black underneath him. Parts of it were stirring now and uncoiling and beginning to shine with a dreadfully oily glister. He wobbled, waved his arms frantically to keep his balance, but that seemed to make it worse. He was starting to go over. He was going over to the right. Quite slowly he was going over, then faster and faster, and at the last moment instinctively he put out a hand to break the fall, and the next thing he saw was this bare hand of his going right into the middle of a great glistening mass of black and he gave one piercing cry as it touched. Outside in the sunshine, far away behind the house, the mother was looking for her son. Well, Frank, that's a side of Royal Doll I have not uh, seen before, but uh, I'm glad we had it. What's our one last thing? Well, since it's the Thanksgiving season, we have an audio tutorial on how to carve a turkey. Very informative. Enjoy. Well, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. Let's get not started. Let's end. <laughs> See you next month. Turkey time.
But when you have a luscious roasted turkey like this one on your table, then it's carving time. Carving is easy. There are many ways to carve a turkey. The method you are about to see is a new and easy one, side-style carving. Whether you carve standing or sitting is up to you, but you need certain carving aids to do the best job. A knife with a long, narrow, flexible blade and a two-tined fork are absolutely necessary. The carving knife should be razor sharp for neat, easy slicing. Now, let's watch Father carve this handsome bird. First, move the platter comfortably close to you. Then, turn the bird on its side with the breast away from you. Raise the wing. Cut it off at the second joint, leaving the last section on the bird. Lay the cut piece on the platter. It's not served. Pick up the fork to steady the turkey and cut a slice or two across the drumstick and thigh to bear the thigh bone. Lift the drumstick and cut it off at the thigh joint, leaving the thigh on the bird. Hold the drumstick on the side plate, big end down, and slice off part of the meat parallel to the bone. Then lay the rest of the drumstick on the side plate. It makes just the right size serving for a hungry boy or girl. Now look at this neat trick. You simply cut around the thigh bone, then lift it out of the meat leaving the rest of the dark meat free of the bone. Slicing the rest of the dark meat goes quickly. Arrange the pieces neatly, overlapping each other on the side plate, to leave room for the light meat. Here's another special trick. Make a vertical cut through the breast meat just in front of the wing joint. This cut automatically makes the base for all the breast slices. Slice from the center of the breast toward you. Steady the bird with the fork. It's also a good idea to have a few pieces of bread for wedges and paper napkins will come in handy. Finish filling the side plate with thin, even slices of light meat, some of it with a little of the stuffing showing. This is the time to remove the rest of the wing if you need it for serving. Of course, part of the flavor we associate with roast turkey is in the stuffing, easily reached in side-style carving. Cut through the thin skin in the region of the thigh where you remove the bone. Here goes that drumstick for a hungry boy. Turkey is delicious any day of the year, and its high protein content gives it exceptionally high nutritive value. A large turkey gives you plenty of meat to serve even a big family. Here, of course, we've carved only half the bird. To carve the rest, simply turn the turkey over and begin again. You can carve without these directions, but you can probably carve better with them. Try the side-style method with your next turkey. And when you've carved a bird or two, you'll find practice has brought a sure touch. Then carving will be a ceremony to add enjoyment to festive meals.